I can dream and, and, and push uh, liberation in a different way. Harriet Tubman was an abolitionist. She wasn't trying to fix her slave master. She wasn't trying to give him training. She was trying to abolish slavery. I want to be in that culture. I don't want to be a part of the reformers. I think an abolitionist is someone who can envision a different world and actually take steps to move the needle. This is We Form the Future, a podcast and radio show that is meant to empower Black voices and our community. I'm your host, and my name is Jasmine. I'm a multidisciplinary artist, creative writer, and public speaker from the Twin Cities of Minnesota. I'm also a believer in the idea that the future is up to us. I believe that we can form the future to support and benefit us for generations to come. And I'm excited, so excited, to share with you the inspiring stories and revolutionary ideas in this podcast. Each week on We Form the Future, a different individual or organization will bring us varying perspectives on the Black experience and explore novel approaches to life, art, existing social structures, and new ways to form a better future. We Form the Future is created by WFNU, Frogtown Community Radio, and funded by the Transformative Black-Led Futures Fund, whose goal is to support those who are responding to the political and cultural opportunity to defund the police and begin the transition process toward developing and implementing a shared vision of community-led safety and investment. We Form the Future is aired on WFNU LP 94.1 FM Frogtown Community Radio in St. Paul every Saturday at 1 p.m. You can learn more about this program by visiting weformthefuture.com. Jason Marquis Soul, a formerly incarcerated abolitionist, is an inspiration. He's been a criminal justice educator for over 11 years and is currently an adjunct professor at Hamlin University in the Criminal Justice and Forensic Science Department. He has been a national restorative justice trainer since 2008, traveling to lead circles in jails, prisons, and communities. In 2019, he received the John Legend Can't Just Preach Award for his work to abolish prisons. In addition, Jason is the co-founder of the Humanize My Hoodie movement, in which he uses to challenge stereotypes and threat perceptions about Black people through clothing, art, exhibitions, documentary screenings, and workshops. And his message is one that many can relate to. I'm a formerly incarcerated abolitionist. You know, I've been through, you know, the flames like many other Black folks. Uh, Been shot, been to prison, uh, been to the workhouse, been in jail for year sentence and stuff like that. So I had my fair share of incarceration and subjugation growing up and in my early um, adulthood. But I started studying the criminal justice system and that's what allowed me to understand that the system was criminal. Like everything about it was the problem in my life. It wasn't the fact that I was a criminal person or I've been like people don't know me like that from high school and stuff. You know what I mean? I had, you know, fun and, and loving relationships, healthy relationships as captain of the basketball team, as a community member. My relationships were always good, but the, you know, the new Jim Crow, the war on drugs, all of that stuff was pulling me back. So I studied the criminal justice system and I'm a professor. I still teach here at Hamlin to students in the criminal justice and forensic science department. For me, you know, growing up, I just always, I didn't have any options. So I felt like selling drugs was my way to economic freedom. And, you know, but now 
you know, I don't have to think about drugs. I can, you know, write books. I can do podcasts. I can be flexible, but it was none of that. <laughs> you know, when I was, you know, looking around trying to figure it out um, growing up in Chicago. So if I knew my rights at 15, 16, I probably would have been able to like really hold police accountable in real time. Cause I used to just tell them like, why y'all pulling me over all the time? You don't got no probable cause. So any cop that know me will tell you at 15, 16 years old, I would always say to them like, you pulled me over for what? What? Turn signal or something. It, they making up stuff. And I, I just didn't have the language to say, you're oppressing me, man. Fourth Amendment say you can't go in my car. Fourth Amendment say you can't ask the passenger what they name is and stuff. I got license and insurance. So for me, I knew some stuff. I was able to formalize it as I grew. And I came home from prison 2000, Jason Marquis from, um, from Chicago, you know, came here and had a drug case, 18 years old, Ramsey County. And I came I was home, telling people it's a, off of 40 it's a great migration from Chicago to here. You know, nobody wanted to give me a place you know, to stay a better in lifestyle. So, so when I started studying south to the north, it was my first semester at Metro Chicago State University, to other places for it. I met way. Professor Sam Grant. He said, I'm not going to let you go back to prison. He was already organizing. He had a farm. He was building schools in Africa. It was a blessing to take his class my first semester, which was African-American history. And I, I took that with constitutional law. So when I stepped in, I already had a revolutionary mind state. 2004, I already was weighing, I need this law, but I also need a place where I can cultivate my understanding of the Black Panthers. And I was the president of the Black Student Association. So my advisor was Chuck McDew, and he's one of the founding members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So I was blessed to walk into a space where I could learn from my elders, I can learn what I needed to do, and really found criminal justice. I didn't even know that was a major. <laughs> I didn't know that like that was available in 2004. So I think my education with lived experience, I bring that to movement space. And I ask everybody else, bring your gifts to the movement. Don't overthink. If it ain't feeling right and you're trying to fit something in, don't do all of that. Bring your gifts. We want you to be able to do what you do naturally. What's that gift? You know, that's what the movement needs the most. So I think that's the approach. You know, really, I mean, we've been we've been defunding education. We could defund the police. You know what I mean? Like, if I take 50 cops off and use that money to really create housing for real for people coming home from prison. That's all a large part of the problem, man. A lot of people don't have their needs met and they trying to figure it out and they making mistakes and they ending up back in the in the system. So it's a it's a daily cycle, man. Like we really oppressed. If you look at the twin cities from and you up way up in the air and you look down, man, you can see the areas where people go to prison the most. You can see where restorative circles are working, what transformative ju justice is doing well. You can see what's happening on the west side, that's dope. On the east side, what we did downtown, helping reduce the crime rates. You can see it, but a lot of time people got blinders on because they always looked at police for their safety, but a lot of me and mine, we never had that option. We tall black guys, that comes with a label that don't match. So we doing a lot of education around transformative justice, abolition, and people are getting it. With every injustice, you're going to see more people asking about abolition. Jason grew tired facing the oppression of law enforcement. His passion for fighting back turned into a passion for criminal justice and community work as he began to learn the laws of the system and the correct language. 
He's always been stereotyped for his appearance by police and other oppressive enforcers, but his action of desperate measures to provide for his family and himself gave police the perfect opportunity to attempt to lock him into a vicious cycle. He then understood the impact of community and how resources, mental health, and therapy could shape troubled communities and rely less on the system. Police used to always tell me they'll kill me out here. I always say, man, don't, hey, look, don't do that stuff to me, man. Like, I'm nice. I'm raising my daughters. I got an amazing wife who grew up in St. Paul. Like, I'm, I'm here doing, you know, doing what I feel like is my work. And they used to always, I'm talking, they pepper spray me downtown Minneapolis. Like, I, I went through a lot in front of a lot of people. Club nights, I always was the one thrown down and treated all bad and stuff. And it's like, I'm the nicest one out of my crew. <laughs> like, for real. Like, I'm like, what the heck? I, I could not understand. I'm like, y'all way worse than me. I used to say, <laughs> I used to say, y'all way worse than me. My morals and values, y'all know, I, 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 I'm not going to do something to harm somebody. I'm just trying to make some money so I can figure out my business moves. I used to say that at 15, 16 years old. And that's not to glamorize or glorify making money off selling drugs because ain't nothing you know, glamorous about that, man. Like, it's, it's trash. And I was definitely taking advantage of people's pain, you know, selling selling drugs. So I got a lot of regret behind what I was doing, but I was a provider. Like, when my sister house got broken into in Chicago, I was able to get her furniture. That's the story you don't hear. And that made me feel really good. And I didn't have another way to do it. So the people who feel like they got to do something wrong to get ahead, we want to end that. We want everybody to have a therapist if they need one. And I think everybody should go to therapy, man. And therapy is dope. Like people be trying to stigmatize it and act like you crazy if you go to um, therapy. But it's like, when I see people who say like, no, I don't go to therapy and then I'll be like, well, what's working for you? Like how you, <laughs> how you got this thing on lock? And I think everybody needs to figure out what that therapy plan is because if we can reduce like the buildup of some kind of emotion or some kind of, you know, um, just a sickness of somebody's not well, let's get our people well, man. We shouldn't have anybody out here who's not, you know, really living their life to the fullest. And when we see it, we need to be able to have something that works because all too often the money goes to people who just don't, they don't have a will to, to like help the people at the bottom. And that's what this is really all about. You know what I mean? In order to have a top, you got to have a bottom. That's what it all boils down to. We mask all these policies and all these different things, but it's like, at the end of the day, my life is to be lived. I'm supposed to enjoy this. I wasn't put on this earth to deal with all the stuff I deal with. So my message is always, hey, how can we protect ourselves? You know what I mean? Like, if we want healthy people, everybody got different needs. So it's like, if we tapping into the needs, rather than feed money into a system that don't serve us, I mean, we actually get the results we want. So we need actual economic funding to be able to do the stuff we want to do. And if we have spaces where we just really talking to people we rock with and y'all form a group and y'all say, hey, we're going to make sure we love and protect each other. That's what we're doing across the cities. That's what we're doing across this nation, man. We're figuring out how to love and protect ourselves like Asada taught us. So for me, it's just bringing my gifts to the movement. Like, I try not to bring no drama. I try not to bring none of my trauma. I try to bring my best self. And I just hope to inspire other people to do that as well. But also understand what police accountability looks like. You can't just keep doing that stuff to us, man. With the lynching of George Floyd, like, for me, I was just like, 
man, we've been dealing with y'all for a long time. I've been choked by police. I've been, they always took my cars to the impound lot. They always throw me in jail in Minneapolis or St. Paul. So I used to always be like, y'all trash, but I didn't have the language. Studying it allowed me to have a language. So with that, I've been able to cre create a lot of safety programs out here that really have worked and got research on this. I tried to teach the uh, Minneapolis Police Department. I tried. I tried to like tell St. Paul and the mayor's office, tried to tell them, hey, you got to you gotta move like this, man. I ain't giving no money to no police. I got people coming home from prison and everything, man. I got people out here, vulnerable people who need protection. Police ain't protecting the people that we care about. They don't love, they don't love black people. So for us, we saying we're not giving our resources to the police and conversation and to government folks. We're not really doing that. Me and my team and everybody who rock with what I do, we're not in a place to try and teach the police or get them to do a training, man. Y'all said that for so long. Implicit bias works, procedural. Y'all was say, like people were saying that for so long. And it's like we still seen a man get lynched for something that was minuscule. Like, come on, man, even if it was a fake bill, for that to escalate to where all them cops around somebody, like who just coming out the store and saying, man, I don't want no problems, I don't want no issues, and he still get lynched? Man, forget that system, man. And I'm standing on that. When that stuff happened at the Capitol, and they ran all in there and did all that, people was like, yeah, why do we have Capitol Police up there if that can happen? more people talking about abolition now because it's like obviously that doesn't work so i think people understand and george floyd because i thought philando woke up the world may philando rest in peace i felt like that was the moment people saw it and they saw that baby in the back what you got to see you know i start asking people like what you need to see the police kill a baby or something like what we got to do like to show you this what's been happening to us who are the police really keeping safe? Jason affirms that whiteness, wealth, and the objectives of slavery are what is being protected, not the people. And that the people need to stop investing into systems of oppression and invest in themselves and their communities to protect, educate, and love one another. It's like you got something. You were, you were placed here for a reason. Some didn't make it. Unfortunately, I say rest in peace to a lot of people when I do interviews. I really do. People I lost in St. Paul, Minneapolis, People I lost who was in prison with me passed away. People, Chicago, I had a lot of death around me at a young age. Classmates were dying at 10 and 11, where I'm from. So I just try and, you know, think about the little Jason soul and try and make sure I'm blessing their life with something to help them be better. That's what we teaching the folks, man. And it's more, it's more life in that rather than trying to repair a, a department that has been just destroying, I mean, in catastrophic proportions, destroying BIPOC communities. We see it all the time. I don't know why people are still shocked when it's like, you see that nine-year-old baby, come on. You see a nine-year-old girl having a mental health issue being just, man, just traumatized, man. Thrown in a police car. She like, man, screaming, I'm a child. Why should she even have to say that? You ain't repairing that stuff, man. I ask every police department, how many white supremacists you got? I've been doing this. This has been a practice of mine since maybe 2016. Any police chief come around, want to be on these panels and all that? How many white supremacists you got in your police department? Oh, you don't know? You ain't credible. 
If you can't tell me that, me and my black family ain't safe in your city. We just smarter now. We we were fooled by a lot of the PR they had. We were fooled, law enforcement fooled a lot of folks, even fooled a lot of people of color into believing that they would be the safety people when the time came. And when George Floyd got lynched, you saw pretty clearly they really didn't know what to do. They were arresting CNN news reporters, just stupid stuff, like <laughs> stuff that didn't make any sense. They had to let their precinct burn. So I'm saying, are, who they really keeping safe? You know, Ricardo Morales always says they protect wealth and whiteness. That's the best way you really can define policing in America is to protect wealth and whiteness. And Man, we just hope everybody can see it. You know, we shouldn't have to always say, look, another person passed away. Another one. Look what they did to this black person over here. Look, we're going through it. That's why I move very evasive because it's like, man, I'm not going to let them harm me just like that. I mean, they might do it, but at the same time, I'm going to make it difficult. I don't want want to just get smoked out here just from driving down the street, man. Like, and that's all. That's our reality. My daughter's going to be driving pretty soon. I think about Sandra Bland. So for me, this work just coming from a different place, man. For real, I want people to be safe, everybody. Like, whether you trans, whether you disabled, whether you elderly, young, I want everybody to be safe. So I do this work from the most sacred place. So I'm able to stay, you know, focused a little bit better in what I do. So that's what I'm bringing to the movement. And that's where the hope is, rather than trying to repair, you know, a, a department that was made to uphold slavery. When you think of abolitionists, you may think of Harriet Tubman, but Jason shows us that abolition and abolitionists can come in many forms. There's something we can all do for the movement. I think an abolitionist is someone who can envision a different world and actually take steps to move the needle. That means I can actually see a world where people are not being shackled. I can see a world where people are not thrown in cages for behavior. I can see a world where, you know, we actually have jobs for folks and actually have opportunity for people rather than people being subjugated. You see, I mean, you see the power structures, like people who have the funds and have the resources to actually make a difference. They're very selective about who they make a difference in their lives because it's always like a give and take relationship. If I do this for you, and it's like, no, just give and keep it moving. That's what... Uh, abolitionist dreams of. So you think about Ava DuVernay. She's a prison abolitionist. She can see a world where we're not relying on cages to correct behavior or whatever you say it's designed for. It just looks like slavery. You know what I mean? If you look across uh, the country and you see black and brown people and indigenous folks, I go to North Dakota, South Dakota, I go to prisons and I've been doing that for the last 12 years all across here. Philadelphia, I've been in prisons all over juvenile facilities, Red Wing, Stillwater, Shakopee. I go in prisons because I know that's it's just important. And I don't even really talk about it much, but it's important for me to go back in and say, hey, I was here, but now I move like this. Let me throw y'all five of my books so y'all can understand this was my blueprint to being able to escape slavery. And I always move like that. So as an abolitionist, I had to think like, there's something I can do to change what black people are going through in America. I, I thought like that when I came, I thought like that while I was in prison, I was a leader in prison. I was like, I say, I always was given leadership, even at a young age, you know, like my father's a heroin addict. So I had to really protect my mom, my sister. 
I had to think of safety strategy. I used to always think, man, if somebody come in this house, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? So because I've had to think like that for so long, I can see a world where everybody knows who they safety people are. And it don't got to be somebody with a badge and gun. Sometimes a mother is calling saying, hey, I just want my son to take his medication. That's what I want. If we got somebody who is licensed, who's a therapist, who can go through social worker as well, go through there and handle that, you ain't got to call no police for that because you don't know what you're going to get when they come. At this point, everybody needs to acknowledge, you don't know what you're going to get when the police show up. You don't know if you're going to get the good cop, bad cop, whatever they say. You know what I'm saying? Because I look, like people say it's a few bad apples. It's like, now when I look at George Floyd, it was four bad apples. A hundred percent were bad. How is it a few bad apples if I saw four people right there? And that's just four. So that's what an abolitionist does. Like Alva DuVernay, she creates the movie Central Park Five. She gave us 13th. She gives us um, Selma. She's an abolitionist. I can dream and, and, and push uh, liberation in a different way. Harriet Tubman was an abolitionist. She wasn't trying to fix her slave master. She wasn't trying to give him training. She was trying to abolish slavery. I want to be in that culture. I don't want to be a part of the reform I'm trying to. That's not my lane no more. I'm, I appreciate the people who, because some people got to work with that. You know what I mean? That's just not my lane and that's not my energy. But for those who feel like they can move something there, go for it. I just don't have the time to play too many games in that world. You know what I mean? The police get all that PR, kissing babies, doing all this amazing heroic stuff. That's what they get on the news. What I get on the news, handcuffed. So that's what that's what we fighting against as an abolitionist. I could do this through documentaries. I could do, do this through workshops. I could do this through so many different lenses. I'm just extra creative as an abolitionist. Harriet Tubman was a nurse, a spy, a cook. She was a general. She was she was able to connect with accomplices. Abolition. Frederick Douglass, an abolitionist. Sojourner Truth, abolitionist. Bree Newsom, abolitionist. She the one who climbed up the pole in South Carolina and took down that Confederate flag. We create them. I'm with them. I'm not with that. I'm not with that just hold on stuff. Like I never really, that's never really been my energy. Just wait and be patient and nah, I'm, I'm impatient when it comes to justice and accountability. I'm impatient when it comes to that. In 2013, Jason was instrumental in developing the Community Ambassadors Initiative. In response to spikes in youth crime rates, community ambassadors aimed to connect with youth where they were at, in the streets. The relationships formed with these young individuals led to a dramatic lowering of the number of juvenile arrests. Jason also worked on the successful MINCO Essay Project, a sex offender reentry program that reduced the recidivism rate of offenders by 57%. I came home 2002, 2005, you saw me at Hazel Park Elementary School reading the kids. I was a freedom school teacher. I taught third through fifth grade. So I was already going in the schools a little bit and I had built a ton of rapport with young, amazing folks. And um, it grew over the years. 2007, I had a program on arcade for two years. I facilitated groups with all gang kids and it was from different gangs. So for me to be able to do that 2007 in St. Paul, 2008, I already had a rapport with so many young folks. I'm like, hey, man, you got an amazing program. You got an amazing program on the West Side. You got 
let's come together. And we just started volunteering, going to every event where we knew young people might fight or shoot. And um, it proved successful just on the volunteer side. We did that. And then by 2013, people recognized in the city of St. Paul, Mayor Coleman, all of them, they wanted to throw money to it. So then we started being able to have funds and be, you know, bring on young folks too. You know, we brought on some, some young, amazing leaders. And all we did was walk around and build relationships. If they needed something to eat, we helped them get something to eat. If they wanted to know about leaving the game world, I talked to them about what I did to lead the game world. If it, if it was about writing a book, I tell them what I was doing to write a book. You know what I mean? So it was just being present for them. And some nights, you know, they could just be leaving a funeral. And it's a lot of hot energy. And, you know, just from the relationships, we was able to quell a lot of stuff. So I think it said we reduced crime by 63%. Community Ambassadors Initiative, they still doing it. It's still going, you know, so it was effective, you know, with us walking and being present on the east side, you know, uh, you know, around Frogtown, everywhere. And we was just loving our people. And like I say, the results were there, but also you got to take it back 2007, I helped the Minnesota Department of Corrections create the Mencosa Project. That was, I was the lead, one of the lead trainers for that. But we said, if you put four to seven volunteers around somebody who committed a sexual offense, love them, but also hold them accountable, it approved successful. Kate Prentice was a part of that. She's big time restorative justice. She gets, she's accredited with bringing uh, restorative justice to North America. She lives in St. Paul. So, Kay was a part of that. I was blessed to be a part of that. Joanne Jones, I can go on and on, but I helped that. You know, you don't see my name on all of the stuff. You know, that's just how <laughs> systems work. But I mean, everybody know my impact for the first three years. And I think it said after year three, we reduced the sexual victimization rate by 76%. So I've been doing things. It's just, I was doing it under uh, uh, umbrella. Now I can do it independently. I can just say, hey, I like what y'all doing less. And, and that's a better, that's a better flow for me. So the programs we started back then, Freedom School was super amazing. I wish Freedom School could have really been all year round because we was teaching Black history to really babies. I mean, it was like, you got to think, kindergarten, first grade. I taught third through fifth grade. And shout out to Marion Wright Edelman because she allowed me to be a freedom school teacher and I'm formally incarcerated. So to let me work with children, which none of these other places would have let me do, she opened the door. Right now we got a homework hotline. So Humanize My Hoodie started a homework hotline where we pay young, amazing black kids who are in college. We pay them to answer K through 12 calls from e-learners. And it's going, it's going super amazing. Like they answer, hey, and they fly too. You know, it's like they can connect with the younger folks. I still can connect with young people, but they younger. So they really can connect. And it's just beautiful to see. So I think on the programming side, we always can be creative and figure out something. We can figure out the pot of money, but at the same time, it's like how are we intervening in this kid's life. Her father was taken to jail. How are we intervening in this young girl's life who just went through trauma at school? How are we intervening? We just being more creative and we empowering people to know what their skill set is at a time of crisis. So whether it's a like full on program or if it's just me loving people enough to say, hey, you can do this. You can get through this, man. I saw somebody else get through it or, 
hey, look, let me help you here. What they trying to charge you for tuition at that school? Let me talk to some people in my network. Hopefully we can get that taken care of. So we start in a lot of different programs and it's always great. I'm working, I'm partnering with Housing Link right now, trying to get an ecosystem with maybe 25 landlords who truly believe in second chances where it's we streamlining, where you come from prison, you go into a nice place and they already know how to support you and be able to have things there for you to be able to just go into a furnished place and be able to um, figure out your job and all of that stuff. Cause it's a lot of organizations say they do it, but I'm seeing too many people fall through the cracks. You know, my cousin came home uh, last Tuesday and he's doing amazing. And that's what makes me happy. And that's what gives me hope. The fact that he didn't have to come home and have to search all around, you know, he cooked his first, you know, uh, dinner on Sunday and he, I had my people go pick up all the stuff. He said, he like, I need oxtails and I need cornbread. And he did his thing. And I'm like, that's what makes me happy. So if I could stay in that place of, hey, I'm good at this. Let me do this and help. I'm good at this. Let me, if we all do that, we could have a police-free world. You just got to keep shrinking the departments. 50 here, another 50, another 50. Because that money go right to the community. Problems are solved. The public saw me. 2015 for Jamar. You got to think, I taught Jamar's brother and sister in school. So it's always real personal. Like it's just a few degrees of separation for me. So I always think like if I could show other people how to build healthy, amazing relationships that'll reduce any kind of harm because everybody loving each other, everybody happy, everybody thriving. You don't need an entity that's inflicting pain. And that's what most of these police departments have been. So police and prisons, they don't have to be. We just got to be able to envision a world where it's like, what's your skill set? How many people can you work with to make that happen? In 2017, during his time as a professor, Jason Soule wanted to publicly honor Trayvon Martin's life and decided to teach his classes wearing a hoodie like Trayvon wore. He understood the difference of how he was treated wearing a suit and a tie versus wearing a hoodie. He felt like he was the same person whether he was wearing a hoodie, slacks, a tie, or a button-up, and he wanted that to speak as a powerful message. The Humanize My Hoodie movement was then born. I've been a professor for eight years. I started at Metro State, and I was there maybe seven years. And I came to Hamlin, you know, cause Hamlin was supporting me when I was out in Ferguson. They didn't have a problem when I was, you know, protesting the state fair. They never had an issue with any of my writing where I'm challenging police, challenging juvenile prisons. They didn't have any issues, you know, and it's just been a better fit for me. But um, 2017, I said, hey man, I've been teaching eight years and I was a visiting professor here. So it's kind of risky to do this as a professor. Usually you can, like dress sloppier the higher up you go you know what i mean like that's usually how it goes in academia all across all across this nation but um i said man i'm gonna lift up trayvon and i'm gonna teach all my criminal justice courses with a hoodie on because i'm like man humanize me man just because you see me with a hoodie on that don't mean i'm no crook man it's like i got a family that like that'd be really sad if i don't come home i got people in the community who I've lifted up and been there for them at some tough times. It's like, you don't know all of that, you know, when you see me in a hoodie. When I got on a suit, students respect me more. Uh, 
faculty respect me more. It's a lot more respect with the clothing. And I'm like, no, I'm challenging that. So I made a post. So really humanized my hoodie came from a Facebook post. I made the post, I stacked up my books and um, had my family in the photo. And I just said, I'm teaching this semester with a hoodie on, I'm lifting up Trayvon all year. And I'm saying humanize me while I'm here. Don't wait till I pass away and say, you know, I was a good person. No, I'm good now, man. Like that's because white folks don't have to go through that. White folks get movies made about them while they alive. Black folks usually got to pass away before you see a story on them. And I'm like, no, I'm not honoring that. So I just hashtagged it. It wasn't something I thought of before. I woke up, I took the picture. And as I was writing the post to, I just hashtagged it, humanize my hoodie. And my friend Andre reached out. He like, hey, man. We got to go with this, man. He like, nope, I'm not. Oh, we got to go. And, you know, he a friend. Been my friend since I was 16. So it's like it made sense for us to do it. But we had to get it trademarked and all of that. Now it's just a solidified movement. And people know they can call on us. And we showing up to challenge uh, hoodie policies in schools. We helping people um, with food, groceries in the neighborhood. We doing, you know, we doing our work. And we just staying in our lane, you know, just trying to you know, partner where it makes sense, but at the same time, be able to grow and develop. Like we even hire young people to work our social media and stuff. So for us, it's just about serving the community. You know, it's like the Black Panthers and other organizations gave us amazing blueprints on what to fight for. If you look at the Black Panther 10 point program, that's the kind of work we trying to do, where it's true to the work, it's true to the nature. We'll lift up all them young people on social media, but truthfully, we want to get out of the way and just be able to fund the folks, you know, who are really young and they feel confident. That's the, that's the best we can do. So Humanize My Hoodie just started as hoodies, but now it's like Humanize My Hoodie University because we trained allies. We got over 1,500 trained allies where you know how to be an ally to us. You know how to support us. You know, you know how to move for us. We're almost to a place where we're going to have a solid base of accomplices. So that's the goal, really stretching the workout. But Humanize My Hoodie started 2017, and it's crazy. We're not even four years deep. I mean, September to be four years, and we're in 70 stores and foot actions across the country. I just found that out while I'm on here with you. Like, we was only in 10 at first. Now we're in 70 stores. And like I say, foot action is black is black centered, from Patrick, the GM, to all the store managers, black. You go to the Mall of America, it's black music on. For me to partner with them, I dreamed of stuff like that when I was in prison. So I'm just grateful to be able to see it come to fruition. Even when I had jobs, it was like, I'm supposed to do something else. Humanize my hoodie. It's inspiring people all over. I'm talking people in Canada. It, like We selling hoodie, hoodies in Greenland and I can't even figure out <laughs> where that is. I'm like, man, that place is past. I, I never been out of the country. And that's how, you know, and that's how the 13th Amendment has worked in my life. You know, I'm 42 and it's the first time in my life where I have a passport. I've been shackled to the state of Minnesota my whole adult life. All while going to college. Oh, I couldn't vote all these years. I couldn't vote for Obama two times. So I've been through it in a way where it's more personal for me and I don't let nothing take me away from the people. Like I really focus there rather than people trying to get me to fight at the legislature or do this and testify. I don't got time for that, man. I'm, I'm gonna help the people that do that. I'll give you some talking points. <laughs> I'll do that. But I like, 
it hurt my heart every time I spend that energy trying to convince somebody with power to do the right thing. It hurts me. It's like, I can't do it no more. I just got to stick to here because I, I, I feel like I wasted or lost a lot of years trying to really have faith in narcissists. And I'm just grateful I learned on my journey and I don't have to waste more years. I could just show up and be authentic and be true to what I believe in. Jason Soule didn't always see himself as a teacher. In fact, it was other people that saw him and believed in him, and that's what he felt he needed as a child to succeed and to do great things with his life. A door was open for him when others kept it closed due to his blackness and background. 2008, I became a national trainer of restorative justice. That's a different form of justice where indigenous folks gave it to us. So I was trained 2007, by Oscar Reed and Jamie. Oscar Reed, you know, he played for the Vikings and stuff. And he's just an amazing person. But um, he trained me as a restorative justice facilitator back in 2007. 2008, I was able to go out to California with One Circle Foundation. And they said, man, we're going to send you all over the country. And I mean, I trained in Hawaii. I went in prisons teaching restorative justice. I even trained at the Las Vegas Police Department, ran circles there. And it was professors, therapists, social workers, coaches, and I was doing it. I mean, my evaluations was crazy. And I think that kind of energy with a master's degree, people just said, hey, it's pretty like seamless for you to teach. I'm like, oh my God, I could teach criminal justice? <laughs> like, I didn't even, a lot of times it was people around me that said, hey, I see you can do this if you just go this way. And that's, that's all I needed as a kid. You know what I mean? I never failed a class in high school and I was quote unquote, the gang kid. I had a gun in the car. I smoked weed in high school. Like I was, man, I, I was a lot, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I was even homeless my senior year. My whole senior year, I was homeless. Still went to prom, still was captain of the team, still had my job. I was doing a lot and nobody was able to say, hey man, this college right here, man. You, Cause I think I could have bypassed all the prison stuff. It's just, nobody wanted to invest in me as a kid. Nobody saw it. They just couldn't see it. And I'm just like, it was just sad for me and frustrating. And I just checked out for a while, you know what I mean? I just like, I think my self-esteem probably was shattered a little bit. Probably was depressed too. Yeah, I mean, definitely getting caught with a gun at 18. When I got slapped with being a felon, it was over for a while. So I lost a little bit of hope. So for me, it's like they saw me working out here. Everybody, they St. Paul and Minneapolis saw me grow up here. Like I grew up from 18 to 42 here. A lot of it was in prison and in facilities and dealing with POs, but you saw me grind out here. You saw me keep working through every transgression. I kept going Metro State because I graduated from there and I met my wife in college. We both got criminal justice degrees from Metro State. That's the best thing out of like, like the career is good and all of that, but to find somebody to love is pretty dope. You know what I mean? And for me, Coming back to Metro State felt right because I went through that department to get my degree. And then if it made sense for me to just be able, but it was really the department chair and everybody said, hey, we'd like to have you on as adjunct faculty. Then I moved up to assistant professor then. So, I, I mean, I'm grateful for the journey. You know, I really am. Like, I don't know other formerly incarcerated folks who teach criminal justice. They might teach sociology or something else. I, I haven't met somebody who was formerly incarcerated who teaches criminal justice, not somebody who was in it like I was in it. 
So for me, I had to have an abolitionist framework and people always wanted to support that. I mean, like I always tell people, I tell young people this all the time. I messed up my 20s, man. I was a lot of prison, going, figuring it out, college, high speed chases, club stuff. But I say my 30s, you got to think I had my baby at 29 with my wife. My 30s was more, let's get a house, let's settle. Now my 40s, hey, it feel like this the this the age. I'm like, man, I feel better than I ever felt in my life. Like I'm like, no, nah, the 40s are this stuff. So I tell all my young people around me, you're going to make some mistakes. I know that. You're not going to always be able to reach the standard. It's all good. I love you anyway. But as you get older and as you stay listening, you're going to be able to you know, figure it out for yourself. And that's always my approach. So coming to academia was pretty like effortless, but it was a lot of students that just didn't like me because I was their first black professor. And to have a record, man, shoot, they grandmothers and stuff was wondering what I was teaching. Like they like, hey, what are you teaching you? Hey, hey, but still here, <laughs> you know, so I'm still here. I was a Bush fellow. 2013 to 2015. In 2013, I would just go to all facilities and say, take me to a solitary confinement. Like I need to see if these kids are getting their education, what's happening with them. I need to see. And um, I just got to a point where I'm like, man, no child should really be in solitary. It just like, especially when you see a girl 14 years old and she locked back in there, man, it's like, no, man, I don't, that don't feel right for me. And I'm visiting. That don't feel right. And I just wrote, I wrote an article, I think it was in MemPost. So I put out an article in this solitary confinement. It made sense to fight for that because that kid is not going to get better because they're in the cage. When I was in solitary confinement, man, you got to think I was talking to myself. I'm acting, I'm, you know, doing old basketball moves. That stuff is crazy. But I had to do this stuff just to keep my sanity. Because people around me, they screaming, they yelling, people putting feces on the window. I'm like, man, I'm not trying to be like that. So I had to really like read, keep myself active because I felt like I was running out of memories. I felt like I had really, I'm like, God damn, like I, like I was getting frustrated because I'm like, I didn't exhausted all my memories in this place. I don't got no more. I thought, them, I thought about them all. You know what I mean? Third grade memories. So it's like, for me, it just made sense to say, man, I'll take them kids out of solitary. You better figure out something. You better figure it like, this your chance to figure it out. So yeah, man, I'm a big proponent of that cage don't make you better. And I was a pretty strong-minded person going into the cage, but I felt myself getting weak and just not wanting to do push-ups and not wanting to do nothing. Some days I just wanted to sleep the time away. And that's just not healthy either. So I, it was a lot. So for me, yeah, absolutely, man. I think you should abolish solitary confinement for kids, man. Like take them out. I, I just don't believe in cages for people. I really don't. We got to figure it out at this point, man. Some people are unhealthy and they are dangerous. Let's figure it out. Where can they go? Do we have a school that we can use where they can have a whole school that's not being used? Let them work off the energy in the gym and let them go into a classroom and let them do some yoga. Like, figure it out. You know what I'm saying? So it's just from that abolition framework of that cage don't make you better. People in COVID are struggling because they can't be outside. So, and they got a whole house. So think about sitting in your closet for six months. Then you talking, you know, I published a lot of articles, scholarly research, a lot of community um, journals. Um, I published from prison to PhD. 
2014. Um, writing is something that comes effortless. I mean, like I say, it's a, it's a gift. It's a gift, and like I can't I can't even take credit for it because I could really sit down. And Mahmoud, let me shout out to Elder Mahmoud Elkati, man. Shout out to Sam Grant. Uh, they helped me develop, you know, a writing style that worked for me. Because Mahmoud would say, hey, just sit at the table and wait for something to come to you. He said, you sit there two hours, I don't care. I'm like, man, I can't do that, man. But they were patient enough with me to help me develop my own writing style. And once people start reaching out saying, hey, you want to write an article for this? Or because it went from, I do interviews. But when I'm asked to write, like they asked me to write a piece for the um, Minnesota Historical Society. It's like, okay, absolutely, I'm doing that. And to be able to sit and have to go into a place where I'm actually pulling from a lot of different frameworks, the praxis, where it's like I got the theory in my article, but I also got practical application. Most, too many people who are in this field, it's more theoretical and they thinking about it, overthinking about it. And I'm like, I got more practical experience with it. I got the theory part, theoretical frameworks, I understand them, racial threat theory, whatever you whatever theoretical framework, social learning theory, whatever we want to look at, strain theory, learning theory, whatever. I know the theories, but I know the practicality. I know what works for me and people around me. So for me, it's like I always want to be able to like bring something new. So yeah, I wrote uh prisoner PhD, I wrote articles, but if I'm feeling it, I might write an article on prison abolition. If I see um, Andrea, Andrea in North Dakota died of COVID in a prison, I'm saying, hey, you gotta get them people up out of there. And this one thing I wanna close with, cause if we could release all these people due to COVID, that shows you they really don't even need to be there. That's what, that's what, that's what my next work gonna be about. If you can release all these people because of COVID, like, hey, we gotta get them out. How we get them out? Like I say, my cousin just came home last Tuesday. They pushing people out early. That's a clear indication. They don't, they don't have to be there. So that's why my work is getting strengthened um, every day. And I'm just grateful because I, I draw a lot of necessary correlations for people to get it. You know, like people, people like think one thing of abolition, then they talk to me and be like, oh, that actually sounds realistic. And I'm like, you think I'm kicking just some crazy stuff? Like this is actual legit. And, you know, I think we need to stop, as I stated earlier, we gotta stop stigmatizing folks who are not well. I need a space to go to if I'm not feeling like myself. If we didn't stigmatize it, a lot more people and you know, not to you know make this a binary thing, but a lot of men would be able to unpack their stuff if they felt like they wasn't gonna be called a name for doing so. So a lot of this work is it's a lot of intersectionality in this work. It's academia, it's the trenches, it's being a good son, it's being a good husband, it's being an amazing father to my daughters, it's social work, it's criminal justice, it's it's a lot, and I'm just you know, nimble enough to be able to be transformed by these various experiences. And I just want everybody else to be as well. Jason's book, From Prison to PhD, A Memoir of Hope, can be found on Amazon. Visit humanizemyhoodie.com for news, events, and of course, hoodies for purchase. Music from today's episode is from Akebe Shakedown. 
Production of We Form the Future episodes are by Sounds Powerful Productions. We'll be back next week with another great episode. For more information on We Form the Future, visit weformthefuture.com. 